Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talk to Dr. Andrew Birch, who is a historian specializing in post-1945 history at the Canadian War Museum. This Saturday is Remembrance Day, our annual opportunity to stop and remember Canada's war dead who made the ultimate sacrifice and the ones that did come home. But not all wars are remembered equally. For instance, the Korean War, which has long been characterized as the quote-unquote forgotten war, it seems to be a postscript when compared to commemorations of the two world wars or the more recent conflict in Afghanistan. This year marks the 70th anniversary of the unofficial end of the Korean War, a war that's still technically happening and is still happening in a very dangerous part of the world. So should we be trying to make sure that that forgotten war gets remembered more? That is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. On Remembrance Day 2013 in Guelph, the 60th anniversary of the end of the Korean War was given special consideration in the ceremony. Frank Bain, a retired colonel who spent 14 months in Korea during the war, was the keynote speaker, and he commended his comrades for their bravery, and he derided the characterization of the Korean War as a conflict or a police action. Those were terms that were thrown about when the Korean War was happening, and that does seem kind of surprising given that 30,000 Canadian soldiers made their way to the peninsula, but it was just five years after the end of World War II, which could objectively be called a bigger war. One of the things that you will come to understand, hopefully on this podcast, is that unlike those world wars, Korea was not a whole-of-country effort when you factor in the home front. Perhaps that's one of the reasons that Korea has become the so-called Forgotten War. But there are plenty of scholars who are doing their best to make sure it's being remembered. One of them is Dr. Andrew Birch, a historian at the Canadian War Museum that specializes in post-World War II history. A couple of years ago, Birch took part in a virtual event for the global affairs think tank, the Wilson Center, called Canada and the Korean War, a Forgotten Ally in a Forgotten War. The point of that panel was that Canada's participation in the war was key to the United Nations' success in repelling the North Korean invasion, and that it was also an important milestone specifically in Canada-U.S. relations in the immediate post-war period. It also dealt with how the Korean War is remembered in Canada, which is complicated, but on this anniversary, it seems like we should start to try and correct that. So Dr. Birch will join us on this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast to shed some light on the Korean War and Canada's role in it. Birch is going to talk about the state of the world post-World War II and then build up to the Korean War, what that war was all about, and the complexities around how it ended. We will also talk about the role that Canada played amongst the United Nations forces, how Canadians distinguished themselves on the battlefield, and how the Korean War was thought about on the home front as it was happening. And finally, we will discuss the state of play on the Korean Peninsula today, the cultural penetration of the Korean War in our popular culture, and the best ways to ensure that the Korean War is no longer that quote-unquote forgotten war. So I caught up with Dr. Andrew Birch a couple of weeks ago via Zoom. Okay, Dr. Andrew Birch, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, glad to be here. Um, I know the exhibit you curated at the War Museum is, is called A, a Violent Peace, um, coming out of the aftermath of World War II. And that sort of sets up my first question, which is... Um, as, as sort of like the Korean War was starting, what was kind of like the state of the world in summer of 1950? You know, what were, I mean, you, you don't have to talk specifics, but in terms of like sort of like the general, I guess, g- geopolitical mood of, of the planet. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I mean, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't all sunshine and roses. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the kind of optimistic state of affairs that took place at the end of the Second World War, I mean, you go to any Canadian newspaper, you'll see all sorts of wonderful uh, outlooks about in uh, May and in September of 1945 saying, okay, now the future can really begin. We can uh, reconvert our industries. We can, uh, you know, bring people home. We can build a peaceful future. Lives, families interrupted by war can can come back together. 
and we had the United Nations, which was the uh, the the creation. It was the alliance, the name of the alliance, uh, going into the final months of the uh, Second World War, and it was also the uh, the replacement for the defunct League of Nations, where you'd have some way to enforce and debate the rules based international order uh, that was set up on the um, uh, based on large part on the sacrifices of all those who uh, who fought and died in the Second World War, and. Uh, that, like every time we have these kind of uh, predictions about what the future will look like, it, of course, didn't manifest that way as uh, soon the wartime alliance, specifically between the Western allies and the Soviet Union, uh, kind of devolved into um, uh, mutual suspicion, uh, you know, scrabbling for territory and power, and, and really uh, underlined by the um, the, the key difference between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, which is that the U.S. was clamoring to move its troops uh, out of Europe uh, initially, and uh, the Soviets were all too fine to have them stay there. Uh, <laughs> and and so there was this um, uh, reshaping of Europe, and uh, uh, that led to you know um, many places that were devastated by the war becoming. Uh, under the uh, the Soviet sway, Germany, of course, remaining divided, uh, and these these sorts of um, flashpoints in um, in Europe that be, kind of defined the Cold War and was the focus of the Cold War were replicated to a greater or lesser extent in uh, in East Asia, where you have uh, in the case of the Japanese Empire uh, surrendering, they surrender their forces to the uh, the Americans and the Soviets uh, in Korea, which had been a Japanese um, a colony, the Japanese, and and uh, from 1910 onwards, uh, and used as a base of operations. It had, in fact, uh, uh, divided between the Soviets and the Americans at the 38th parallel, mm -hmm. and so the the prospect there, much as in Germany, was, oh well, we'll work together and we'll find a way to to reunite the, this country, uh, but there there was no agreement about how that could come about. And so by 1950, you had fairly uh, well-entrenched nationalist uh, blocs in both the North and the South that are operating largely along the lines of the Cold War uh, conflict that had developed elsewhere. So the, it was a, a, a familiar pattern, you know, threatening to become a rut, where you had this situation where people were, uh, were, were polarized, uh, where there's increasing discomfort with the uh, level of, um, uh, particularly level of Soviet aggression on the Soviet side, of course, very uh, suspicious of the, uh, of, of, uh, you know, Western capitalist powers and having been invaded twice by the Germans in, in uh, the 20th century, not particularly eager to see a unified or strengthened Germany. Uh, so there was a lot of, uh, uh, of fear that kind of carried over and, and built and paved over the hope that you saw at the end of 1945. That's a bit of a long answer, but that's, uh, uh, that, no, that's no, that's, that's yeah. good background for sure. I, I guess then the question then follows and I'm going to ask it as, as sort of like the straightforward way possible you know, what's the flashpoint? How does a war start on the Korean Peninsula? Right. Well, I mean, a, a number of things happen in the, uh, the lead up to 1950. Uh, one of which is that there was, uh, you had two governments that were set up, uh, first in the South and then subsequently in the North, both uh, sponsored or, or um, I wouldn't say agents of, but uh, with governments whose aims strategically allied with uh, their, their, uh, their sponsors be the Soviet Union and in the north, and the uh, the United States in the uh, in the south. Nationalists both both very keen on uh, on reuniting the uh, Korean Peninsula. So you had uh, the Kim Il Sung, the grandfather of the uh, the current uh, dictator of North Korea, uh, mm. who had fought who had fought with the Red Army in uh, in Manchuria during the Second World War, and had um, you know uh, uh, good. Uh, communist and uh, anti-Japanese bona fides. And then in the South, you had the uh, nationalist, very anti-communist government of Syngman Rhee, uh, who was a Princeton-educated uh, person who had uh, come back to Korea following many years and was leading a government that was uh, staunchly uh, anti-communist. And so these two visions of what a reunified Korea might look like, even if the Soviet Union and the Americans were eager to uh, push ahead with a program to reunify, which they they weren't uh, meant that there was there was going to be a um, there's a great deal of uh, discontent. The South, it's worth bearing in mind at this time, is, was not like the North. The North was more heavily industrialized. It was the economic power at that time in 1950. 
so it was, the South was largely agrarian. Uh, and so there was a lot of unrest over the, uh, you know, things like land reform and uh, the, the U.S. presence and some of the um, land reforms that were taking place up in the North were popular in the South. There were leftist groups and there was something like a civil war of a kind in South Korea as uh, the uh, uh, the uh, South Korean government, uh, the military police were putting down uh, a series of, of uprisings, some of which were, you know, um, nascent uh, political organizations in the South, some of which were infiltrated uh, by by the North. And uh, so the, the South looked like it was going to be pretty easy picking uh, mm. because it was very unstable. It was uh, it, it had a lot of instability and didn't have the stability that you would have in, say, the dictatorship in the North as it was forming up. And so it was really the uh, the idea of uh, Kim, uh, Kim Il-sung to approach the Soviet Union with a plan to... Uh, uh, to take on the uh, the small American garrison that was there and the Republic of Korea, they thought it would be a pushover, and it largely was. Uh, in the early days of the uh, uh, when they did decide to invade in June of 1950, on the kind of flimsy pretext that there had been a uh, uh, a South Korean attack, and they had been uh, they decided to um, you know uh, retaliate to it. It, it. It was an invasion, uh, and uh, observers on the ground were pretty able to dismantle that lie pretty quickly. Uh, and uh, it, that's what the crisis kind of sparked from was from this this uh, this desire, I think, uh, quite legitimate desire, to reunify Korea under one uh, in one state after many years under uh, you know Japanese colonial rule. Uh, and uh, but the uh, the outcomes of it were, of course, uh, tragic for everyone involved. Yeah. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but technically, the Korean Peninsula is still on a war footing even though there's been no like fighting fighting for 70 years yeah the the uh the 70th anniversary of the armistice passed this past july so that's mm-hmm. the uh the active phase of fighting the korean war lasts from june 25th 1950 through to july 27th 1953 the war goes through many phases but uh essentially there are three signatories at the table uh there was the uh the north koreans uh there was the uh, the chinese uh People's Force, and there was the which who intervened um, earlier in the war, and United Nations Command, represented by a U.S. representative. The South Koreans weren't at the table in large part because they felt the uh, that the UN should keep fighting, should aim for reunification, and the uh, have never signed on to the armistice. So there's there's an armistice, there's a, a ceasefire in effect, but no peace, and so there is a uh, demilitarized zone separating the two groups. All of the the circumstances of the agreement have largely uh, remained intact uh, over the past 70 years, but there have been uh, many incidents where the North has uh, done provocations, you know, firing, sinking ships, uh, infiltrating raids, kidnappings, mm-hmm. these sorts of things. So it is a still a dangerous spot. And of course, we've uh, we've had you know missile threats and other things that have that have come forward uh, as the. Um, uh, which became more, uh, I think, pronounced as North Korea became more and more isolated uh, in the years, um, you know, of the early 21st century. But it was mm. a, uh, it, it took a, it took a lo- good long time after the wars to rebuild uh, what had been destroyed in the course of, you know, three years of fighting and bombardments and uh, and uh, artillery shelling and these sorts of things. And uh, the transformation of both Koreas is really uh, quite astounding when you look at it over the 70 years that that transgressed, you know, transpired, you know, what, what is, has taken place. Um, yeah. So essentially the, the, uh, uh, it remains a hotspot. Uh, mm. although, uh, you know, I, I hope, and I think everyone hopes that it, it remains, you know, if it has to be uh, in a state of suspended conflict, may the conflict stay suspended. Right. Uh, although we can all, we can all hope for peace and, you know, maybe one day, uh, 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 peaceful reunification uh i think that's something that everyone would uh would get on board with although the way in which to go about that is is very difficult yeah one would think that you know now that you know two generations removed from the person who sort of created the country there might be some warming but i mean how how big a role does isolation play in terms of the inability to have any kind of unification like the, the north just doesn't want to play at all it seems uh i i would uh i'd hesitate to 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 issue a, a great opinion on that i think that the, <laughs> the north the north has uh 
I think its own view of the state of affairs in the South and the state of affairs in the world. Mm. Uh, it's had it's pursued a policy of kind of self-reliance uh, for many years following the war because they were kind of um, after the, especially after the Chinese intervened in the war in um, the fall of 1950, when things were going quite badly for North Korea, they were kind of forced to take a backseat to the, the, the war effort uh, while the Chinese did the bulk of the fighting. And that, that was a, a bit of an embarrassment uh, mm. for for the north and in the years since they've really followed this policy so you know, i sometimes hear people saying oh we you know that uh, back in the cold war of course the popular view as well that the north koreans invaded at the behest of or were asked to invade by the uh the soviet union right. that wasn't true they 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 made their own call and now there's kind of commentary but oh well you know they're really uh, an agent of china that's just not true they, they they are their own sovereign independent country with their own views uh and just the same as, as south korea is and so there's a um you know the prospects for peace and unification are not good. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, but I think that the the uh, the the North Koreans uh, have a, I think a better, notwithstanding the propaganda and all that sort of stuff, have a pretty good bead on um, uh, on you know the the state of affairs in the region and are probably keeping a keeping an eye on things. Uh, I just don't think that it's likely that they're going to find a uh, a way to peacefully reunify in terms that are friendly to them, mm. uh, especially given you know all of the the challenges that they faced and all that uh, South Korea kind of has to lose at this point. Uh, right. But I mean, again, that that's just my you know casual observation uh, based on what's there. My kind of specialty is you know uh, seventy years ago, not so much uh, 2020, <laughs> 2023. Well, let's get back to seventy years ago then. Uh, what role did Canada play? In, in the Korean War, um, I, I guess, and, and maybe this, you can go into detail about how it, it sort of sucked in all sort of the many of the member nations of, of the UN. Um, but just in terms of Canada specifically, you know, how, how are we involved? Right. So, uh, uh, well, reluctantly is probably the way to put it. <laughs> uh, so uh, at the time of the invasion, uh, there had been a an election in the South uh, that had been supervised by a UN commission that UN commission had reported back to the United Nations and basically said, there's, there's only one government that we recognize in so in uh, Korea and that's South Korea. And so uh, South Korea had a presence in the United Nations that the North did not. And so mm. when the, uh, when the invasion took place, the South Koreans and the Americans appealed, uh, you know, with the American support appealed uh, to the United Nations for help that we're being invaded. We need, uh, we need support. And uh, the United Nations uh, uh, Security Council uh, ended up condemning the invasion and uh, uh, soliciting member states to provide support to South Korea. Now, the reason they could do that is that at that time, the uh, the uh, Chinese seat on the uh, Security Council represented uh, the uh, nationalist China, which had been defeated in the Chinese Civil War in 1949. Right. And uh, this was an issue of contention for the Soviets who were boycotting the uh, Security Council meetings. And that's the only way they were able to get it through the Security Council because the Soviets weren't there uh, and couldn't veto. So essentially, the call goes out uh, to Canada, to other member states, and ultimately 16 states end up sending military forces uh, to Korea. And uh, there's about five others that send uh, other sorts of support. So I think the number of like sending states is about 21, 22. Uh, but Canada was one of the uh, larger contributors, initially with a fairly small uh, temporary commitment of three destroyers that go uh, that go overseas, start, start sailing uh, over there in the uh, start steaming for Korea soon after uh, June and they get to theater um, uh, you know about a month and a half later uh, and uh, basically are conducting operations off uh, the largely the uh, west coast of um, uh, of Korea supporting um, screening missions supporting tankers uh, doing some light bombardment activities uh, as the mission unfolds and as the thing as the mission got uh, or rather the uh, U.S. and South Korean defense, which was largely the uh, the, the backbone of the defense in the early days, uh, was going quite poorly in, through the summer of 1950. So by July of 1950, uh, they had been pushed basically to a perimeter um, at the very southern tip of the peninsula uh, around Busan, uh, around the mountains there. Mm. And there was, there was a 
definitely a risk that uh, they they might be pushed into the sea or you know forced to forced to flee and uh, set up shop in Japan or something like that. And uh, so the Canadian government, in response to this state of uh, emergency, uh, made the the call to recruit a special force for Korea. Canada did not want to have a large uh, regular force stationed in Korea. It was not a priority for the Canadian government, but. In answer to the call of the uh, the United Nations and through uh, you know other diplomatic channels, uh, recruited a special force, a uh, a brigade, to serve in Korea that was uh, made up of all volunteers who were not at that time present in the armed forces. So, kind of in July, early August, uh, the the appeal goes out. Uh, Prime Minister Louis Saleron is saying, "Okay, you're needed," and. Uh, there's an influx of, uh, you know, people are lining up, uh, signing up in, in great numbers t- to serve with the Canadian Army units that would ultimately deploy to uh, uh, deploy there. And the first uh, groups start to arrive in December of 1950 after a period of training, uh, recruitment and training in uh, Fort uh, Fort Lewis, uh, Washington. They leave from Seattle. They they sail across the Pacific Ocean, Japan, and then land in Busan in December of 1950. And that's the 2nd Battalion, Princess Patricia's Canadian Land Infantry, who mm-hmm. were the first on the ground. And they were joined by the remainder of the uh, Canadian Brigade in May of 1951. And so essentially the uh, job of the uh, Canadians on the ground was to join in a series of UN counteroffensives and uh, to to kind of move the, uh, the UN line further uh, north uh, from from the 38th parallel. At the, by the time they arrived, uh, things have been complicated by the Chinese entering <laughs> the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, and then subsequently in holding defensive lines established by the United Nations in the hills in Korea, uh, north of uh, north of the 30th parallel, uh, just a little bit north of the 30th parallel in other areas, uh, and basically protecting those lines. And that after the fall of 1951, those lines stabilize fairly um, uh, stabilize, and they end up uh, becoming more static lines of defense, right. uh, punctuated by occasional raids, artillery battles, and um, uh, you know, uh, nightly patrols out into no man's land between the two positions, which uh, has a, a, a you know a cost that's built up. But in this intervening period, there's been uh, battles, key battles uh, for Canadians at places like Cap Yong in April of 1951, uh, at Hill 355 or or the Saddle, as it's sometimes called, in November of 51. Uh, before those lines stabilize, uh, where Canada is part of that UN hard shoulder to uh, to keep the Chinese um, forces that had intervened uh, from securing more territory and breaking the UN uh, defensive lines. So it's a, uh, uh, you know, what, what Canada did there depends on when you look at it, right. uh, e- either the earlier naval engagement, the more substantive uh, ground engagement. And of course, there's the Air Force component, which was a uh, an airlift that operated between Tacoma, Washington and uh, and Japan. Uh, called Operation Hawk that was, I think, 426 Squadron, and it was flying um, uh, Buffalo aircraft, and they were going uh, just, uh, you know, 80-hour round trips uh, throughout throughout uh, many years. And there are also a number of Canadians who are attached to uh, U.S. Uh, Air Force uh, jet fighters uh, as, as exchange pilots. So a couple of aces who are fighting MiGs in the skies over, uh, over, over Korea. Uh, so that's, uh, yeah, that's that's the, the kind of broad brushstrokes, how did Canada get involved, what were we doing, was largely uh, about supporting the UN effort at on sea uh, uh, in the hills of Korea and also uh, in the air. What I find interesting is that there were sort of eager volunteers who signed up, which I, and this may be modern thinking, but I can't imagine five years after a world war, there'd be people eager to sign up to go to another war i mean what i mean was there was there a concern that this could be you know be something bigger and not just be something that was sort of sequestered in on the peninsula oh absolutely uh you look at some of the i've had the the privilege of being able to look at a number of the uh, well all the personnel records of all the canadians who uh, who passed in korea and you often will get like recruiting officers interviews with those people. And why did you want to join? So you get a bit of an insight. It's not everybody who's about 30,000 serve uh, in Korea, uh, but uh, you get a bit of an insight into what some of the motivations were. And so some of them were folks who genuinely believed in the threat of communism, that this was a, 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 you know, that their 
grand, their father fought in the First World War, their brothers fought in the Second World War, and they wanted to be on ground floor of World War III, uh, <laughs> which was you know kind of a, a a bit of a strange way to put it. Yeah. But uh, partially, it's it's because of a fear that this might become something bigger, and they felt called to respond much as they're you know carrying on a family tradition. There were some people who were you know. Uh, looking for a sense of adventure. You know, they're working in, in logging camps in uh, rural British Columbia or in the uh, New Brunswick. And that's uh, that's a hard life. That's not very uh, not very fun. You're not making great money, but you could make good money with the army. And so there was a, a chance to uh, satisfy that adventure. Uh, there were folks who were just too young to serve in the Second World War and, and uh, saw their brothers and fathers and sisters in some cases uh, go off to serve. And they felt that it was they wanted to have that opportunity and didn't. And there are quite a few people who, you know, had experienced military life. I think about uh, upwards of like 60% uh, of the recruits who went out, maybe even more in some cases, in some units, uh, who were Second World War veterans, who had had mm. the taste of military life, uh, had enjoyed the camaraderie and uh, weren't, you know, maybe adjusting as well or, or weren't uh, didn't like their civilian employment all that much and wanted to carry on. There weren't. I think very many who were enlisting for the purpose of saving Korea, because mm. most Canadians didn't know much about Korea or care much about Korea. Uh, they did care about, um, uh, in some cases, you know, a largely a Christian uh, country being invaded by communists. That that often would come up in some of the results. So I think that the the uh, and some people just enlisted because you know they went with their friends for something to do, and they decided, you know, oh, I'm downtown. I'll I'll go and I'll go to the army with my friends, and then. Their friends don't end up enlisting, but they do. So it's, there's all sorts of uh, every story of everyone who got into the uh, the the um, Korea mission uh, did so voluntarily, but for often for very different reasons. <laughs> I guess then, you know, you have this big effort. They get to Korea. It, it's kind of a losing battle, but they manage to turn it around. And and I'm I'm being very obviously very general here. Um, but, you know, they push the north back north and then you get this sort of it's not a stalemate, but I mean, it's essentially, as you said, static for the next sort of year as I guess they bang out the armistice. I guess then. Because, you know, you don't want to say it, it, it was kind of like, you know, as compared to other wars, there wasn't a lot of action because there certainly was action. But one of the reasons I wanted to do this was thinking about that article that was written, you know, the forgotten war. And, you know, when you go to the, our, our war memorials there, you know, it has big long lists of people who died in world war one, big long lists of people who died in world war two, and maybe a dozen names of people who died in Korea. It feels like a piece of sort of like our forgotten history, especially on like a remembrance day. We're remembering our war dead. I think, and maybe it's because it's recency bias or whatever. We, we kind of remember, you know, soldiers who died in afghanistan or other recent conflicts more than you know we kind of go from world war one to world war two to modern day and i guess from your point of view as an academic what fosters this sort of i guess forgetfulness like why don't why isn't korea more of a more present in our conversations around remembrance day us oh, it's a good question i think the uh you know, I, I think there's an American historian whose name uh, for the moment escapes me who uh, comments that if, if Korea is the forgotten war, it is actually more typical of, of almost every American war because mm. uh, most most American wars are forgotten. And I would argue that most uh, post-1945 military operations are, are forgotten uh, or not, not as well known. I mean, we, we don't talk uh, about... Um, you know, we don't talk about the war in Kosovo. We don't talk about the sure. war in Libya. We don't talk about the Gulf War, uh, perhaps as much as as we do the 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 Second World War and the First World War. And I think that that uh, part of that is, as you say, a, a a numbers game to a certain extent. That there were far fewer people who served in Korea, for example, than served in the Second World War. You had uh, you know a force of a million uh, men and women in uniform. You had the whole of the um, home front that's purpose was turned over to winning the war and korea was the first of these kind of expeditionary post war uh, post second world war forces that uh you know waged a war quite quite serious quite protracted uh, quite difficult 
but did so well, the uh, kind of body politic at home was kind of getting on with life as usual, you know, complaining about inflation and uh, rising <laughs> house prices very much. You know, that was the, 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 the reason for which the various elections were being fought uh, in, 19, in the 1950s was about cost of living and about uh, inflation and about unemployment. Mm. It wasn't about kind of, uh, are we winning the war? And so the term forgotten war, as as far as I can tell, actually originates uh, in 1951. In December of 1951, there's an Anglican uh, uh, Anglican uh, pr- uh, primate who comes back, come, goes to Korea, meets with Canadian soldiers, talk, hears about their plight, what they've endured in the months, uh, very hard months of 1951, before the lines become more static, uh, and comes back to Canada and says that you know this, this is a forgotten war. We're, we're forgetting about these people even as they're fighting, and it of course catches on in large part because uh, in part because there are far fewer people. It makes up a small, a smaller um, group of veterans. Many of the veterans who did come back, they, they were not fighting in places that were familiar. They were fighting in mm. numbered numbered hills in many cases in a country few people knew about. There wasn't the kind of family connections they'd have in the UK or in France, for example, with many communities. There was not a sizable diaspora of Korean Canadians. Uh, now there is, uh, yeah. but at the, to- at the time, uh, next to none. So there was not a kind of constituency that existed save the veterans themselves and so they were fighting for a place at the table at places like the legion and ultimately they they developed their own associations like the korea veterans association and they found uh they found solace in each other and their own their own service and it's also worth saying that many of them unlike in the second world war where you served for your six years and in many cases you got out uh and you know started a, a new life largely because the armed forces weren't recruiting at the end of the 45. They're like, yeah, thanks. Thanks for your service, but you're not allowed to stay. Uh, <laughs> in, in There was a, a major increase in the Canadian armed forces during the war, because uh, we all, we believed at the time that this, this was just a feint that the main focus of uh, events was going to take place in the NATO theater in, uh, in, in Western Europe. And so there was a need to garrison uh, the Federal Republic of Germany and to have that standing force there for a generation. And you needed soldiers for that. And so many of those who, who served in Korea, that was just one of the deployments that they did that could be followed up by NATO deployments, peacekeeping, and so on. So uh, they didn't have the, uh, maybe didn't have the time to get involved in some of the veterans activities until much later in life. Right. So it's a, it's a, it, there's a very, it's a fairly simple question. Why do we forget? But it's a very complex answer. And I would, I would hazard to say that as we now are approaching um, a point where uh, many of the Korea veterans are no longer with us, much like many of the Second World War veterans are no longer with us, that there's been a bit of a passing of the torch uh, to a certain mm. extent. And I think that, that uh, there has been, um, having had the chance myself to travel to Korea with veterans this past summer and see the, the level of, uh, of thanks that's being offered, the you know, big ceremonies and uh, uh, you know, really heartfelt thanks by the, the uh, South Korean government as people that there's, there are going to be a constituency of Korea veterans, but also Korea Canadian, Korean Canadians, uh, and their descendants, uh, both veterans and Korean Canadians alike, who have a shared interest in in uh, in telling that story, uh, as well as you know the descendants of the veterans, you know, being able to to tell those stories going forward. So I'm very I'm optimistic that it, it won't be forgotten, and I think that mm. one of the things that uh, the reasons why it won't be forgotten, I suspect, is because while it wasn't necessarily thought of as a success story at the time, it mm. wasn't a uh, out and out victory over the uh, much like had been the case over Japan or the Nazis, uh, where there was unconditional surrender and they vanished from the face of the earth. North Korea is still there, but South Korea was a uh, devastated country, nothing left standing in Seoul, and for the Canadians who returned this past summer, they didn't recognize anything. Because right. it was so rebuilt as a uh, you know economic tool, there's a uh, you know K-pop and cultural products that are coming out right. there, Squid Game and so on. So it, it's a force that exists in the world, and that's in part because of the uh, service and sacrifice of those who stood up to defend it during the Korean War uh, from the UN sending states and from the Republic of Korea and elsewhere. Notwithstanding everything that's kind of passed in between and all the difficulties that have emerged in the intervening years there's been this ability for veterans of Korea to say, Hey, I helped do that. So I think that that's been a, um, especially as time has come on and as we've entered uh, the 21st century and more time has passed since the armistice, everyone's kind of 
wary about where the future may head, but uh, certainly uh, looks to the accomplishments of of, um, of South Korea and, and the reconstruction that's taking place there as evidence, perhaps, of the utility of their own service, where they may have thought at the time, like, you know, we're leaving with the status quo kind of cemented in place. Right. What was my service work? What did my, my friends die for? And in parts to give space for South Korea to exist, which was a success. That's such an interesting way to look at it, that the culture and success, the economic success, the cultural success of South Korea is the, I, I guess, sort of the the marker of success in that war effort. There's no like, yeah, there's an armistice, that, but there's no like treaty. There's no surrender, as you said. But South Korea is there; it prospers, and that's because of the the sacrifice of so many different people. Yeah, the mission was save South Korea, and South Korea was saved. Not yeah. perhaps in the state that South Korea at the time wanted, <laughs> uh, but uh, in their leadership wanted at that time. And no one could tell what the future would hold. But of course, the uh, the, the the circumstances under which many Canadians enlisted, that end state was achieved. Mm-hmm. And uh, that you know can, is not true of every conflict in which Canadians participate in, certainly not in peacekeeping operations where the the goal is status quo right uh, you know you you don't you're not there to solve the problem you're there to buy time for other people to solve the problem in many right. of the deployments that canada canadians have in, embarked on so th- that wasn't a thing at the time uh that's a model that we became more comfortable with as time went on but it certainly was uh one that with those veterans who I who I went with, some of whom had hadn't been there since they were basically passing through, you know, rice paddies and uh, overcrowded refugee centers and these sorts of things, to see it as a thriving metropolis, uh, a thriving, you know, a countryside, to see the gratitude that people are piling on them, and to be able to revisit uh, uh, comrades in the uh, beautifully maintained UN cemetery uh, in Busan. That would have been a very significant and uh, and meaningful visit for them, but also their uh, their caretakers and um, descendants who came along for the visit. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 definitely a it's definitely a very uh, moving. It was definitely a very moving event, much like any you know battlefield visit that you might do to uh, to Western Europe to see how how things were able to you know rebuild and regenerate after the war. Just it's uh, very moving for me as well as I think for the for the veterans who went. We're talking about culture, and I, I think, for, you know, for better or worse, we experience a lot of our culture through movies and TV shows and documentaries and things. And I've always found Korea sort of lacking in that regard. Um, you know, there's lots of movies and docs and TV shows about World War II and Vietnam. And I mean, even the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. Uh, yeah. You can point to MASH. Robert Altman will tell you his MASH movie was about Vietnam. Everyone who worked on the MASH TV show will tell you their show was about Vietnam. So, yeah. I mean, is is that a piece of sort of our missing understanding that we haven't been able to process Korea through cult, even when it's something about Korea, it's actually about something else? <laughs> well, I mean, that's often the way that, uh, that Korea was kind of looked at at the time when they're in 1954, when a lot of the Geneva conventions were being held uh, to talk about reunification in Korea, that one of those things that was set up under the armistice, which went nowhere. Mm. At that same meeting, they're also discussing, you know, what are we going to do about uh, Indochina or, or Vietnam? And so, you know, that Canada gets roped into the uh, international commissions that are there. Uh, there's a long story there, but essentially Korea kind of bleeds into Vietnam. And uh, there's a lot of that cultural uh, um, uh, imprint from Vietnam gets put onto Korea in large part because of the American uh, presence there. Canada, of course, you know, uh, has volunteers who go to, to Vietnam under U- U.S. forces. There's a U.N. presence there, but it doesn't. It mainly is is impacted through our its manifestation of popular culture and uh, you know draft resistors and others who come to Canada. So, right. you know, as for like Korea, a media that's kind of born of and about Korea uh, in Canada, I, I think that it's it's very rare where you get actual media that is produced. Um, it, you know, there's not a great uh, history of Canadian uh, television and uh, media productions about 
conflicts as they're as they're unfolding, mm. uh, and uh, there's very few that actually touch on uh, the Canadian um, presence in you know peacekeeping operations, Second World War. It tends to be documentaries, and there are some very good documentaries about uh, uh, Canadian presence in Korea. There's uh, great uh, documentaries about the Battle of Kapyong, about um, uh, you know 27 Heroes. I think was one that was put out by the History Channel a few years ago about uh, the defense of Hill 97, uh, with interviews from folks. Terrific, terrific stuff. Uh, but in terms of like the you know mass market penetration of things like a Saving Private Ryan or a Mash, <laughs> uh, yeah, about you know Korea in its own terms, uh, you know for that you'll have to go to Korean film, and um, mm-hmm. uh, there there hasn't been a, and I I think maybe it'd be great if one day there was, uh, you know a, a, a CBC KBS partnership to create a, a documentary or a fictionalized series about Canadians in Korea. I think that'd be fantastic. I I drop everything and watch it. Uh, but just by, by the way that uh, the way that like media production works, I I don't know. I don't know how possible that is. It's on my mm. wish list, but I don't know how possible it is. Oh, well, th- does like South Korea because they have their own like vibrant media industry? Do they, you know? go into that period of their own history and, and like oh yes like dramatizing it or yeah ab- absolutely no there's all sorts of uh of great uh documentaries uh uh dramatic productions that touch on touch on that that very period uh there's a lot of uh you know uh this, yeah, some terrific, some terrific stuff. I'm trying to think of some examples that would come out right now, but just even the touching on um, the kind of militarized state of of Korea. Uh, there was a, a one that just came out. Uh, you know, the person who directed Parasite, one of his uh, uh, one of his productions was about the DMZ. You know, so Bong there's Jun-ho. there's a yeah, Bong Joon Ho. So there is a there's definitely a presence there, and and the Korean War I think filters into a lot of their media in the mm. same way that uh, you know. A lot of our media kind of draws from and touches on, you know, uh, you know, Canadian American relations. It's like the elephant in the room. You can't, ah. uh, can't dissuade it. And and uh, there's a great um, a display that's that's on at the Saw Gallery here in Ottawa that I had the chance to look at. And one of the the interactive or AV features is uh, is prime time video of people who uh, were orphans during this uh during the korean war the early stages going on national tv with like just memories of like i was wearing this sort of shoe and i trying to find family because families were separated by the war uh mm. remain separated by the 38th parallel in the dmz but mm-hmm. also were separated through the big crush and movement of, of people and this was like prime time a prime time show so it's an inescapable part of the media landscape uh in in uh, south korea and i think that uh you know I think when you talk about the Forgotten War, mm. um, you know the thing that characterizes Canada's war in Korea is that we were contributing to someone else's war. It wasn't right. strictly speaking our war in the same way that uh, that perhaps the Second World War, that the existential stakes uh, that that were kind of associated with it. Uh, notwithstanding the kind of lofty rhetoric that was coming out of uh, you know addresses from Parliament and these sorts of things, it for the Canadian body politic, it didn't have that same connection. And so it is something that can often be overlooked. But it, I think that uh, when you look at the people who've had the experience of serving there, it's been unforgettable. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, a lot of thoughts here, but um, I, I do have an eye on the time. So maybe I'll wrap up with, with this question. Um, how was Canada different after Korea was the the Korean War was over when the armistice was signed and as as troops were coming out, I mean, again, as you were saying, not all of them came home. Others went to yeah. uh, went to other posts. But you know, as you know, as sort of like we're moving in from nineteen fifty three to nineteen fifty four, how did Korea change Canada? Well, that's uh, hard to say, especially looking <laughs> at the, at the lens from fifty three to fifty four. I think that uh, the the main thing that Korea did. Uh, to Canadian defense policy and, um, and and the outlook for the future was to convince the Canadian government that uh, the Cold War was in fact uh, not just an ac- academic exercise but real, and that um, you know all the soft power stuff that had been developed since the end of the Second World uh, Second World War had to be reinforced with more hard power. And so you had this uh, great you know some of the greatest peacetime spending on um, on military on the military. Uh, in as part of the fifty one fifty two budget, uh, massive investment in in essentially preparing for World War Three. So, Korea was a, a in a sense a bit of a 
uh, a wake-up call in a series of very dire crises that emerged in the immediate post-war period, uh, but one that was perhaps the the uh, the greatest threat uh, of the you know of the early fifties, and led to a very much a changed kind of defense posture when when Canadians returned home. Uh, it also you know in terms of the the uh, you know body, body politic more broadly not as much penetration, but you did start to get. Uh, people who would become the core, like much as the Second World War veterans were the core of those who had, who trained for uh, for Korea, they, they were the kind of uh, the the hardwood at the uh, training the uh, the green soldiers. You you had that same core of people who had served in Korea who were informing and bringing up the next generation of soldiers uh, that would come forward, and that carries through in regimental traditions, the naming of barracks, like Kapyong barracks, these sorts of things. They they have a presence that is. Uh, inside the armed forces which is its own kind of culture uh within the broader canadian uh canadian culture and i think that uh as uh canada becomes more comfortable with and getting uh involved with uh with south korea diplomatically and there's a greater uh, korean canadian population there's also uh that the fact of the korean war also uh factors into how those communities um think about history and think about the veterans and these sorts of things. So uh, it's always changing history and its meaning um, and how its impact is always, is always in, in a bit state of flux, but in 53, 54, basically Canadians who served in Korea were coming to back to a country that at one point had kind of moved on from Korea mm. uh, in that it wasn't something that was, you know, in the headlines as much anymore, but was very much looking forward to the next cold war crisis. So, and uh, in, in, getting the tools to f be better equipped for that crisis. I think that's a fair way to put it. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of years later, we're kind of involved in another crisis that the, the Suez canal. Yeah. The Suez canal and uh, the, the dawn of uh, United Nations peacekeeping. And of course, uh, then of course the Berlin crises of 1958, 1961 right. Cuban missile crisis, <laughs> uh, you know, it's just, uh, you know, one thing after another. And so I think that, that, uh, but, there are people who are in those groups who would deploy, who had that core experience of perhaps Second World War, Korea, and also UN peacekeeping, or also NATO uh, duty as well. So it, it becomes a part of the, the spectrum of military experience that veterans are bringing to the table. And, and I think it's a reminder, too, that, it, you know, it's not unusual. You know, we, we kind of feel a bit overwhelmed as, you know, one crisis after another develops, whether it's here um, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's, you know, what's going on right now in Israel, uh, Ukraine, you know, kind of stumbling from one <laughs> global calamity to another is not a new phenomenon. <laughs> I think the uh, when we look at the, the uh, people and the stories that we tell of the War Museum, we often characterize them as ordinary people living in extraordinary times. History mm. isn't something that uh, history isn't something that's just in a book. It's something that is happening all the time and that the, there are people uh, in uniform and out of uniform who are helping to shape it. And I think that uh, those people who responded to the call in Korea helped to shape the outcome uh, of that. And so uh, we we owe it to them to tell their stories. I do have one more question. So I, I lied about five minutes ago. But um, <laughs> it, when it comes to sort of like looking up history about the Korean War, perhaps local history, you know, it, I'm in Guelph, you're in Ottawa, so a, a, a day trip to the war museum is a bit out of the question. But, um, you know, just sort of looking up, you know, wherever people are, trying to find out more about the Korean War veterans from their neighborhood, you know, w what are some good resources you can recommend? Oh, well, uh, I, I have one resource that might be of interest uh, to your uh, to your listeners. We do have a, uh, I did work on, as I mentioned, a research project into the Canadian uh, fallen from uh, from Korea. And I managed to uh, put all their data, including their place of birth, their place of enlistment, uh, where they fell uh, to within a certain degree of accuracy on a uh, Google map. So you can actually kind of look and see. So you could, if, you want, if you're interested, how many people of, of the 516 Canadians who did not come back from Korea uh, and the Far East Theater, uh, how many of those uh, lived in or near uh, Guelph, for example, you can look that up. Uh, there's also... Um, Often you mentioned memorials. There's a great mm -hmm. uh, resource that that's a great local resource where you can go if the names are found there. There's also the Canadian Virtual War Memorial, uh, where you can search uh, search up names from the Korean War, uh, and often you can like put in place of birth 
within Guelph. And you can, there's also, uh, you know, some great works of history out there, um, including uh, the works of William Johnston. Uh, I've got a book coming out with uh, my colleague, uh, Tim Cook, and a bunch of contributors in, uh, in May of 2024. So uh, hold fast for that. Always be plugging, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> uh, so so that is, uh, that, that's going to be coming out. So there's, there's uh, increasingly, you know, great stuff that's out there uh, on the, on the Korean war. And, but if you're looking for stuff like in the community and, uh, you know, you, you won't go wrong from, uh, you know, spending a bit of time and, and, uh, looking up some of the names that you might find on the, on the cenotaphs, uh, in the region. Um, but if, uh, I can send you the link to the, uh, the Google map, if that'd be, yes, that would be great. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I can share that with everybody. Um, we'll leave it there though. Um, but Andrew Birch, uh, you've been such a great resource to helping uh, me and uh, hopefully our listeners understand Korea a bit better. So thank you for all your time today. Oh, my pleasure. And once again, that was Dr. Andrew Birch. The Canadian War Museum presently has an exhibit dedicated to the Korean War called Canada, Korea, and the War, and it runs until March 31st at the museum in Ottawa, and you can learn more about that exhibit plus all the programming at the Canadian War Museum at warmuseum.ca. You can follow Birch on social media at postwarhist, postwar H-I-S-T, on the Twitter, and you can also buy his book, Give Me Shelter, The Failure of Canada's Cold War Civil Defense, wherever you can buy your books. And Remembrance Day services here in Guelph will take place on Saturday morning, starting at McCray House and then downtown at the Sleeman Center before the parade up Wyndham to the Cenotaph. And to learn more about all of those commemorations, check out Legion Branch 234 at their website, rcl234guelph.ca. And that's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple Google, TuneIn, and Spotify, and when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Source's Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, or send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. Until then, we'll see you next time. Thank <laughs> you.